BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. Today, we're heading to Del Rey, a little farming community about 20 miles south of Fresno. David Masamoto, everybody calls him Moss, drives an old pickup past rows and rows of fruit trees that are exploding with blossoms. We were in the Spring Lady Peaches. This is a multi-generational family farm. His dad bought it in the late 40s. Six rows of nectarines that bloomed uh, a little earlier. Moss's daughter is taking over operations, and there's a new grandbaby who will grow up playing in these orchards. And then back here are four rows of apricots. Food lovers come from all over the state to pick their own Masamoto peaches and nectarines, including reporter Lisa Morehouse. And she knows Moss's work as an author, too. In his latest book called Secret Harvests, Moss writes about the shock of a newly uncovered family secret. So Lisa went back to the Masamoto farm for her series, California Foodways. She wanted to learn about Moss's discovery and about just how resilient his farming family is. Mas Masumoto says he farms with ghosts. So these trees are like an old-growth forest. They're 60 years old, and no one keeps an, a, you know, an orchard for 60 years, but they're still producing wonderfully. When he walks these rows of sun-crest peaches, the spirit of his father is by his side. When you plant something with someone, and in this case with my father. Literally, our fingerprints are on this. He points out cuts made 10 and 20 years ago by farm workers and his father, his daughter, and himself. And yet new growth, and this is what I love about this, new growth is coming to fill it. A teenaged moss helped his dad plant these trees, reluctantly. I didn't want to be out in the field planning, and my dad was being methodical, planning one by one in a row. I was rushing. Look down the row, and you can see some trees aren't lined up, and some are leaning over. He was more interested in playing electric guitar. Moss was the third kid, a renegade, a misfit. He couldn't wait to leave the farm. He remembers one day during his senior year of high school. I uh, applied for college, got in. I was a bad guitarist, but I was playing a Led Zeppelin song. It was a whole lot of love. My dad comes in and says, hey, can you do this work? And I said, sure, but you know, I'm never coming back to the farm. And I probably broke his heart, and he just said, okay. He went off to UC Berkeley, then studied in Japan, where he ended up in the country where his ancestors farmed rice. 
I was there working the rice fields. With his great uncle. Pulling this wooden cart through these ancient rice fields. And I go, I don't have a clue how to grow rice. And I realized I love the countryside, but, you know, maybe I should come back to peaches and nectarines because I understand it. I know the rhythms of it, plus the cultural rhythms that come with it. Cultural rhythms of family and history in the Central Valley. He came back permanently over 40 years ago. And he thought he knew all of that family history until one day in 2012. Moss got a phone message from a funeral home. And I thought it was, they wanted me to buy a, you know, a, a early package <laughs> before I passed away. And I go, ah, what is this? But he talked to one of the owners. And this wonderful woman named Renee, she said, I want to let you know that your mom's sister, Shizuko, is in a hospice program. Renee's funeral home had received a contract to bury Shizuko's remains when she died. And I said, what are you talking about? This isn't my aunt. I know all my family. Even though it had nothing to do with her job at the funeral home, Renee wanted to find a living relative for Shizuko and had scoured census records as far back as 1930 and cross-referenced them with obituaries. She showed it all to Moss when they met. And I go, yeah, that's the Sugimoto family. There's my uncles, there's my aunts, there's Shizuko, and there's my mom. Shizuko had suffered a stroke and was in a nursing home just a few miles from Moss's farm. She'd been in Fresno since the 1970s, literally living down the road for more than 40 years. But Moss had never heard of her. Renee told him, You know, I just want to make sure she doesn't die alone. Moss was stunned. But before running to his mom with the news, before sending out emails to the family, he checked medical records and met Shizuko. She was near death, curled up in bed. All he could do was hold her hand. And something about holding her hand made me feel, she's real. He sat down with his mom. And I said, you, you know, remember an aunt, Shizuko? She goes, oh yeah, she passed away. And I said, take a deep breath, mom. She's alive in Fresno. And there was silence. There was silence. Ma says he could see a rush of simultaneous emotions cross his mother's face. Guilt, shame, loss, and joy. The next day, she was ready to reunite with her sister. And in the following days, other family members came too. They sat at Shizuko's bedside, talking and reminiscing. Moss asked them to tell him more about his aunt. No one knows the whole story or is willing to tell you the whole story. You know, so everybody told me slightly different parts of it. Moss started to piece together Shizuko's timeline with the family history he already knew. Shizuko was born just south of Fresno in 1919 to a family with a long history of farming. Both of my grandfathers were second sons. They weren't going to inherit the rice field in Japan. In the early 1900s, they came to California, to the Central Valley. His grandmothers were picture brides, single women who married men in America, matched only by photographs. And they were farm workers, and that's an important distinction. They were forced to work on other men's farms for low wages. Racist laws kept them from owning property and applying for citizenship. Shizuko was a typical farm girl, playing in the fields. 
realized the family was poor, they didn't have childcare. You would take kids out into the fields with you. I know that because I did that growing up. When she was five years old, Shizuku got very sick with what the family later learned was meningitis. They didn't take her to a doctor. And I kept thinking, how come they didn't get medical care? But then you stop and think, oh, wait a minute. They were poor. They lived in a rural area. They didn't speak English. They were immigrants. They were Buddhists, and many hospitals were Christian. There was no health care for them. When she came out of her fever, Shizuko had lost most of her speech. Masa's relatives told him she stopped growing intellectually. I know she never went to school, right? uh, because there weren't special ed programs back then. Uh, uh, so they tried to take care of her best they could through the Great Depression. But they couldn't always keep her safe. Now, Masa's mom and her siblings did tell him a lot about their sister, but some of their memories were hazy, and some were just too painful to talk much about. One story Moss could only piece together from fragments they told him. Shizuko was a teenager, home alone, maybe while her family was working in the fields. When they came home, her clothes were torn. Obviously, Shizuko was upset. My aunt said, there were bad neighbor boys. And after what they did to Shizuko, my grandmother cut her hair off so she'd look like a boy hoping this might protect her daughter when she couldn't. Moss doesn't want Shizuko remembered for this assault, for one of the worst moments of her life. He likes to imagine her in a place she could wander freely and dance, the family garden. My grandfather was a carpenter, and he made these intricate wooden pagodas and buildings in this little miniature garden. Shizuko would spend hours there. My mom used the word, she'd be lost in the garden. And I love that idea, she would be lost. And that's where she found comfort, I think. When Moss works on the farm, he thinks about his grandfather's garden and about Tankabushi, a song and dance performed at a festival to honor ancestors. It's like a folk dance, a folk song, and it was about coal mining. With dancers moving as if they carried shovels, Japanese immigrants brought tankobushi to their farming communities. Mas demonstrates dipping, turning, and reaching. So when the music cues up, you would move forward and shovel, 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 stop, pick it up, toss, toss, turn, turn, push, push. And Mas likes to imagine Shizuko wandering around the miniature pagodas in her father's garden, moving like the dancers she'd seen. Shovel, shovel, toss, toss. But after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Mas's dad removed the pagodas. Shizuko stopped wandering in the garden. The family was exiled from home. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. The government hastily built prison camps and forced people with Japanese ancestry to move into them. Masa's family was assigned to Gila River in Arizona. The entire community bounded by a wire fence and guarded by military police, symbols of the military nature of the evacuation. 
the family had no idea how long they'd be at Gila River, what the conditions were, and if there would be any way for them to care for someone with special needs. They had no options. It was a crazy, chaotic time. So in desperation, they contacted the local sheriff, asking if the state would take care of Shizuko. And the scene that that I was told was that my aunt Shizuko was holding my grandmother, her mom. The sheriff came and pulled them apart. And my aunt realized she's been taken away and started, she couldn't talk much, but she could say a few words. And she was saying, mama, mama. The sheriff put Shizuko in the car and promised she would be cared for. This is when Shizuko and her family began living parallel lives. Shizuko became a ward of the state, and the rest of the Sugimoto family left for Gila River, where they would be imprisoned for more than three years. In 1945, when they returned to the Central Valley from prison camp, the Sugimotos were worse off than ever. They were still farm workers, owning nothing, scraping by as laborers for other people, struggling to survive. But Shizuko's mother and eldest brother searched for her. They uh, locate Shizuko in a mental hospital, in one of those big ones that had thousands of patients, uh, saw her, and the word was that, that they said at least she's been fed, she's been taken care of. So maybe she's better off there because we can't take care of her because we're struggling just to feed ourselves. The family never spoke of it again. In the late 40s, Moss's dad cobbled together enough money to buy the first acres of this farm. When you hear the shovel go down into the dirt, you could hear this. And you go, oh, crap. That's hard pan, mineralized soil that's a nightmare for farmers. Moss's dad spent years cleaning out the hard pan on this land, sometimes with dynamite, so he could plant trees. Thud. It's the thud of reality. It's amazing where it's the thud of history, right? You got this land because no one else wanted it. So this is the reality. This is the sound of being poor farmer. While the rest of Masa's family struggled to put down roots in the Central Valley, Shizuko was without family. She was a ward of the state in institutions. But Moss imagines there might have been moments of connection across time and space between Shizuko and her mother. The Sugimotos did a lot of work with raisins during the blistering hot late summer. One thing about raisins, you could work off the farm during the day and in the evening take care of your own farm, right? You got two incomes that way. That's how you survived. They'd pick grapes and dry them on paper trays between the vines. When the grapes turned into perfect raisins, each paper tray was rolled up and collected from the field. And on a full moon, you can work at night. I know my grandmother worked late, rolling trays late at night. He imagines a moment when she paused and looked into the night sky, and Shizuko did too. Could they have been at the one moment uh, under the same moon? When Moss met Shizuko in 2012, she was comatose. 
but her caregivers told him what she was like before the stroke. They actually would say, we love Miss Sugi. Short for Sugimoto. Oh, she's so full of life. She'd sneak up on someone, pinch them lightly, and run away, giggling. Shizuko wandered the care home halls so much that the staff got her those tennis shoes that light up. She'd put on those, those tennis shoes and walk up and down the hall and watch the lights go sparkling as she ran up and down and ran back, and she would do that for hours. Caregivers also talked about Shizuko's morning ritual. She loved hot coffee in the morning. And when she was finished with her cup, she would throw the cup over her shoulder. So they quickly realized that they had to switch cups from a glass cup or a plastic cup to a styrofoam cup. And they moved her seat so that her back was to a wall, and her cup would hit that, not another person. That was her trademark. She was carefree, free enough to do that. All this time, as Moss was listening to his family's stories, building an image in his mind of the woman his aunt had become, she remained in a coma. We thought she was going to pass within weeks. She was in hospice. Uh, The doctors that I saw and nurses, the nursing staff at the assisted care center, all thought she would die. The caregivers said, uh, we'll see. Ma says these caregivers, who called his Aunt Miss Sugi, dressed her in lighted tennies, and delighted in her playful pinches, kept her alive. They figured out a way of feeding her, not intravenously, not through a tube. They figured out a way where they could tickle her, and she would kind of stir from her comatose state. They would give her a liquid diet. They did this for three months. And then... Moss got another surprising phone call. Hey, you know, your aunt, she's up. I said, what? Ah, She woke up. You should come visit her. When Moss arrived at the home, one protective caregiver asked who he was. And I said, well, I'm her nephew. I'm her family. And he looked at me and he goes, where have you been all these years? And it just hit me right here because he was right. And it made me realize they were her family. And when he came face to face with Shizuko... I wanted this kind of this image you see in a, in, a, in a movie or something where she looks at me, I look at her, and we start crying, and we hug each other. No, she didn't know who I was. And then she kicks me. She kicks me. And I go, what? And I looked, and I realized she wanted her shoe tied. It dawned on him. Getting attention when she needed something... That was one way Shizuko survived 70 years in institutions. And it was the perfect way to be reintroduced to Shizuko and her story. This is how family secrets are. They kind of kick you. And that's how you sort of say, oh, I think I need to pay attention to this. Over the next many months, Moss walked alongside Shizuko, who now roamed the halls in a wheelchair. Sometimes she allowed him to help her around people who blocked her path. You know, she didn't kick me anymore, you know. Uh, you know, she would touch my face, you know, which I thought was a sign that I was, I was something to her. At first, Ma says he struggled to tell the story without being angry. You know, angry at, you know, decisions that were made, angry at alien land laws, alien, you know, angry at internment. But the more he learned, the more people he met who knew Shizuko, the more his family told stories about her, 
the focus of his emotions changed. I began to realize, no, this family secret isn't depressing. It's about life. She's alive in Presto. She's part of this family coming back together. It's really about like a family reunion with the past in the present. When Shizuko died in the summer of 2013, at age 93, the family was able to place her ashes with the rest of the Sugimotos. This one might be rooted a little deeper. We're in a row of spring lady peaches that Moss planted in 1985 when his daughter was born. He's going to plant a new tree, but first he's removing parts of an old stump that's rotted out. The old tree has been pulled out. It's giving up its space. It's time for this tree to move on, and then we'd plant a new tree in this spot. Need, because the tree was so old and because there was so much decay, you don't need to remove all of it to plant this new guy. Seems to me that the wood would just decompose and actually feed it, and it would also create a more porous structure. So you want water to penetrate where the roots are. You know, and then there is this theory, right, about how trees and plants talk to each other. You know, would the new roots say, oh, I'm in this comfort zone of one of my ancestors? Or does the old decaying tree just make the perfect soil for the new one? And I would like to think it's both. Moss does find comfort in the company of his ancestors. Aunt Shizuko's now in his pantheon of ghosts, another resilient ancestor helping on the farm. Moss says... He thinks about Shizuko when he's walking rows of peaches in bloom, when his shovel hits hard pan, when he's rolling paper trays of raisins. He farms with her spirit now. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Del Rey. This piece was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative news organization. And now we're heading to San Francisco to the 100-year-old Castro Theater. It's probably the most famous LGBTQ plus movie house in the country. It's got plush seats, ornate gold decorations, and a massive organ. With so many movie theaters around the country closing their doors, the Castro's new operator wants to transform some of the interior of the theater so they have the flexibility to host concerts and other events. But supporters of this beloved space are raising concerns about the planned changes. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors has even gotten involved. The debate about how to best preserve this movie palace got KQED's Bay Curious team and reporter Christopher Beale interested in how the Castro Theater became so iconic. The Castro Theater opened in 1922 on Castro Street in San Francisco. It was called Eureka Valley in those days, the area we now know as the Castro. It was a working class village on the outskirts of industrial San Francisco. An emerging neighborhood and an emerging commercial strip, only a few shops. That's Gerard Koskovich. He's a queer public historian. The Castro Theater was opened by the Nasser brothers. They hired this designer named Timothy Fluger to design a grand movie palace. His first movie theater, he would go on to design celebrated ones, including the Paramount in Oakland. 
What Pfluger designed was this eccentric, eclectic movie theater with tapestries on the wall and a golden proscenium surrounding the screen. The Castro Theater cannot be ascribed a coherent historical style. It's a bit of a grab bag of Beaux-Arts, Spanish Baroque, Renaissance, and a variety of other styles, including some Art Deco elements. When the Castro first opened, it was showing silent films, and the audience was primarily the working class community that lived around the neighborhood. People expected to see a very mixed program, to see some shorts, perhaps to see a newsreel, to see a feature, to hear live music. The Castro Theater became known almost immediately for its spectacular pipe organ. The organ itself has been replaced a few times over the years, but there's always been one there, and it's the kind of thing that would have accompanied those earliest silent films. The Castro Theater's 1,400 seats make the auditorium feel huge by today's standards. But in its heyday, the Castro was considered a smaller neighborhood movie theater, dwarfed by several larger theaters in San Francisco that played first-run films. The Castro played second- or third-run films, stuff that had already played at the bigger theaters at a much lower price. In the 1940s, as America broke free of World War II, the makeup of San Francisco's neighborhoods began to change. It was the first major U.S. city to deindustrialize, and the working class moved out of San Francisco. More specifically, the white working class. The population of the city declined more than 15% between 1950 and 1980. By 1955, half of all American homes had a TV, and the impact was felt by movie theaters across the country as Americans opted more and more to just stay home. By the late 1950s, the Castro, this declining working-class neighborhood, started to emerge as a gay enclave. Word began to spread that this little neighborhood near the heart of the city was safe and welcoming to certain members of the gay community, more often than not gay white men. And then the first gay bar opened in the Castro in 1963 on Market Street. By the early 70s, it was becoming very clearly marked as a gay neighborhood. Around this time, a guy named Mel Novikov begins to program the theater. Bringing back old film, mixing it with art house films and foreign films, it was very much understanding this emerging urban public. And what emerged at the Castro Theater very quickly was the fact that there were an awful lot of crazed movie queens in San Francisco <laughs> who just had to go see a double bill of the women and whatever happened to baby Jane, often dressed like their favorite characters or dressed to mock some of the characters, often reciting along the best lines of dialogue. I've written a letter to daddy. 1,400 people inside a single giant hall where LGBTQ people could feel utterly safe in the dark. I think that's one reason so many LGBTQ people refer to the Castro Theater as a sacred space, a church, a temple. We're not afraid there. We don't have to be. In the 1980s and early 90s, the LGBTQ community was being devastated by AIDS. By the time that effective treatments were introduced for AIDS in 1996, 18,000 people had died of AIDS in San Francisco. The overwhelming majority of them gay men under the age of 50. The overwhelming majority of them living within two miles of the Castro. But that gay theater in the Castro became this sort of escape 
from the harsh realities gay people were living with. It was a place to go after you got done with the two memorial services for people you knew that week. You could bring people who were sick and they could sit calmly in a safe, secure, comfortable place and know they weren't going to be excluded if they had evidence signs like Kaposi's sarcoma lesions, that people weren't going to pull away from them, that they could remain part of the community that had been built there. And in much of the United States, remaining part of the community as a person with AIDS was impossible. KQED's Christopher Beale reported that story. You can hear more about the Castro Theater and the historic preservation debate on the Bay Curious podcast. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer-director. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.